Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. I talk to the trees. Stop and hear what I say. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock hour, our outdoor living hour, the second Saturday of the month. So that means we are talking trees. And we've got uh, Arborist in from Save a Tree. And our home maintenance calendar, you may be expecting to hear about the pink trumpet tree, but we had moved that to March because it was in bloom and it was a better time for people to go see it. So the tree of the month this month is the aspen, and there's a very specific reason why we put the aspen in there. We've got uh, Gary Peterson, branch manager of Save a Tree, along with another special guest. You know, Gary, I'll let you introduce Jordan. Tell you what, we got a very special guest today. Um, this gentleman is a 26-year veteran to the industry. Uh, for the last 12 years, has been a member of the Save a Tree line, service line director team, which oversees the operational functions of Save a Tree. He's a graduate of Western Illinois University with a degree in agriculture science with a minor in urban forestry. Jordan Orwick, thanks for being here today, buddy. Uh, thanks for having me. And when we say being here, I mean, you're in from Wisconsin. I am. I am. It's uh, quite the weather change. I'm enjoying it uh, quite a bit this week. Uh, typically, they, they like to send me in July, August. So You want to know something funny? In our CRM database that we have of homeowners that... Uh, have second homes. Wisconsin's the number one state with second homes of our listening audience. Really? I would have never guessed that. It's a, it's a beautiful area for about three months out of the year. <laughs> you didn't bring any cheese curls, did you? Oh, I could have. <laughs> Next time. But you're familiar with this uh, nasty little thing called an oyster shell? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, uh, this is this has become somewhat of a new pest uh, for you folks out here in the Southwest. Um, something we've been dealing with on the East Coast and in, in, in the Midwest both for, for a number of years. Um, uh, fairly common insect. Uh, it is a scale insect, which, uh, you know, kind of is where I want to start with this. And, and really... Um, you know, from a from a green industry or horticultural standpoint, a lot of times these insects that are in the scale category, these um, this type of insect, uh, a lot of times it's considered a very difficult insect to control. And uh, you know, today I want to talk uh, a little bit about the life cycle of that, and uh, you know, really give some people uh, a little bit of knowledge about that life cycle, which is very critical when we then uh, look at controlling or reducing the impact of this pest. And this pest is common or showing up on our aspen trees. And a couple of years ago, we had a broadcast about the bark beetles for ponderosa pine. Well, this is something else for our Flagstaff affiliates or anyone in Phoenix and Tucson with mountain homes or property and the high mountains where they may have an aspen grove on their property, something that you can be checking for and inspecting when you're up visiting your, your mountain home, which many of us that are fortunate enough to have mountain homes will be doing here in about uh, another two or three months. I'd say 60 days. <laughs> yeah. It's getting fairly warm now. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, you know, uh, you know, what, uh, one thing I, I, I find that is very similar to, um, to this insect when comparing to like the mountain pine beetle that we saw in the pine trees, especially across Colorado, um, is a lot of times we don't really notice that there's an issue until the issue has gotten rather severe. Uh, these, you know, this kind of pest a lot of times does a lot of its damage, um, 
and the tree responds perfectly fine up until a certain point where it can't maintain anymore. And unfortunately, a lot of times when we as arborists get to uh, the you know the state of the plant, um, you know infestations are pretty severe, and we've got a pretty good challenge ahead of us. And what is that challenge? Uh, and you said you've been dealing with it in the other parts of the country. Or this this insect. How do we? How do we nuke them? So the 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 biggest challenge here, um, and and why this insect a lot of time gets a reputation of being difficult to control is. A majority of its life stage, um, it is pretty well protected um, with a waxy coating that really um, makes it hard for us to get some of our contact uh, uh, pesticides uh, really where they need to be to then control the insect. So, uh, you know, really the key to, to understanding and controlling this insect is to target the generation where... Uh, the eggs of the insect hatch, and these nymphs or crawlers begin to emerge and then uh, restart the process. And because, you know, this process doesn't exactly all happen at the same time, it's somewhat staggered, uh, we have to then um, be prepared and work within that window to target that life cycle. If we uh, if we go after the after the uh, the life cycle too early, we you know we risk being too premature and then not having the effective residual of the product there to actually control the pest. If we're too late, that insect may be protected by this waxy coating. Therefore, it's not really going to get an appropriate dose of the material we need to to control it. Um, you know, fortunately, um, you know, with, with agriculture technology over the last, uh, 30, 40 years, uh, we have, um, gained some materials, uh, in our, uh, toolbox, if you will, uh, where we can actually be very effective at treating this insect, um, expand our window of opportunity and, uh, really have a low environmental impact outside of the target that we're, that we're aiming for. Um, so, you know, really, again, um, you know, going back to the insect in itself is, very, is, is not that hard to kill or control. Um, but there's a lot of science behind the process of getting that timing correct. The timing sounds extremely critical. I mean, what's the life of cycle? Does, I mean, do these bugs live so, a year, uh, two years? Yeah, an oyster shell, uh, oyster shell scale, uh, as far as I know, in every market uh, in North America, uh, produces one generation per year. And your best window for success is in the early stages, but it can't be too early. Correct. And it can't be too late. So something only lives a year, this time of chemical application. That's like a three to five week window, maybe? Uh, that might be stretching it a little bit, actually. Um, <laughs> wow. wow. You, That's you know, pretty it's, precise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, uh, you know, generally speaking, when we, when we see a, a life cycle window, um, we, we can anticipate having four to six weeks uh, opportunity to be effective with our treatments. Um, again, um, you know, this is a situation too, and, and a lot of times where we actually get to the site, it's compounded so much, and there's such a high population of insects on the tree. Um, your rate of essentially egg hatch is is can be very variable. It could be a matter of uh, you know ten to fourteen days apart in some instances. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, we've I, fortunately we have some great science behind this. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we haven't figured out how to get all these insects to read the books. So. <laughs> we're uh, we're still uh, we're still trying to stay ahead of uh, ahead of the game here, and, and again, um, uh, good integrated pest management practices, understanding the life cycle of the insect, understanding what the plant's going to do, how it's going to respond, 
and being able to anticipate that timing and then use uh, a specific material that is going to give us a little broad spectrum residual and allow us to really have that tree protected and controlled through that life cycle. What are you looking for? How do you identify it? Uh, I'm walking through to my cabin uh, and I'm surrounded by these trees. What's going to set my eye off to say, hey, I might have a problem with this? So um, ironically enough, in, in, in aspens, typically what people will notice is the bark of the tree starts looking different. And what's looking different on the bark of the tree are actually those adult female insects. Um, it, it, the oyster shell scale, scale gets its name because of its resemblance to an oyster. So if you if, if you are to you know to go on the on the internet look these up look at a picture of them it, it's really amazing how much they do resemble oysters and uh, with this particular insect as the populations increase they actually will multiply and you'll see these scales on top of each other to the point where it almost looks like the actual bark of the tree. Wow. So now it looks yeah. like them size wise though they're not as big three to four millimeters yeah very small. Yeah, and, and, and that's that's why they become so difficult in the early stages to detect because they typically are going to like um, some of the younger, more tender tissue where they can uh, insert their mouth parks into the branch of the tree and then um, they feed by, by pulling the water and nutrients out of the tree. Um, so they tend to stay up in, you know, in some of that um, more juvenile bark at first and as the populations increase, that's when you tend to see them more start to congregate and build up around the bark and on the main on the main stems of the trees. And usually, by the time it gets to that point where it's that visibly noticeable, you're at a very very severe infestation level, and you're probably along that going to start seeing some physiological changes in the tree. Um, you know, we we have a saying in in save a tree that you know we don't feed trees. Uh, you know. Uh, Trees essentially are autotrophs, they feed themselves. So what we're doing is we're providing a food source for them. And with this insect, um, this food source that the tree is producing for itself is being consumed at a pretty rapid pace by this insect. Um, and the results um, will be typical to um, you know a, a lot of diseases that are or insects that are going to be limiting that carbohydrate content inside the trees. So symptomatically, you'll start to see um, your new tips of your branches start to grow back. You're going to see reduced growth intervals. The tree's not going to be um, as vigorous as it normally would be. Um, severe infestations can um, you know can exhaust the tree's resources to the point where it it um, it is it is killed. So, um, you know, fortunately, these uh, this process uh, will take uh, oftentimes three, four, or five years of infestation, repeated damage. Trees are very resilient uh, organisms, and um, you know, there's there's a certain amount of natural defense it will put out and maintain until it just becomes too much, and and essentially the tree will fail. Uh, with aspen trees, uh, fortunately though, they uh, do have the ability to coppice back up and grow a new tree. So <laughs> there is that advantage here, um, but um, you know most of us don't have that kind of time to wait. Right. <laughs> no, that's true. We've got Jordan Orwig and Gary Peterson and from Save a Tree, Talking Trees, the tree of the month. We changed to the aspen just because we felt it was important for uh, anyone in Arizona that owns aspen tree or properties with aspen trees on it to be aware of this oyster shell and to start uh, keeping an eye out for it. More Talking Trees right after this. 
What kind of a tree can fit in your hand? A palm tree. <laughs> Welcome back to our monthly Talking Trees broadcast. We've got Gary Peterson and Jordan Orwig of Save a Tree. Gary, you're the local branch manager, and we brought Jordan in from Wisconsin. Uh, it was it was incredible timing because he had the knowledge of the oyster shales, so that was the reason you'd brought him into the broadcast this time. It just happened to be that he was down here uh, in Phoenix uh, as part of we are checking um, on you guys. I mean, <laughs> kind of, kind of. <laughs> Jordan, I, Jordan, and I talk at least once a week, uh, even if not about trees or plant health care or football or whatever. Um, <laughs> But uh, we're, we're kicking off our lawn integrations uh, this week. And uh, Jordan said, hey, let me come down and work with the team. So he's actually been on a truck all week and yep. out doing his thing. He's tearing it up. Yeah, Appreciate that's you uh, coming in. I, I tell people all the time that uh, I have one of the best jobs at Save a Tree because I, I'm not really accountable for anybody. I don't hire. I don't <laughs> fire. I don't discipline. <laughs> Everything I get to do in my job is help people be successful and take care of their trees. Uh, it's it's pretty sweet gig uh most of the time so and and i get to come to come to beautiful phoenix uh in you know in the winter time on occasion and uh get away from the cold can't, can't say i blame you <laughs> can't say i blame you <laughs> well thanks for spending a few minutes uh talking uh, to us and helping arizona understand this new infestation fairly new you know the the first article i read about it it seems like they've only been following it locally for about two years but you said Park City, they've been fighting this for a while. Yeah, this is uh, and th- this is really a great advantage to an organization like Save a Tree, uh, where we have a national platform. Um, you know, in general, you know, plants are plants, and and they all have the same basic needs. But there's a lot of regional diversity, and being part of a national organization, you know, also is very encouraging for me because I'm always learning. Um, you know, I'm in my core market, you know, obviously the Midwest most of the time, but, you know, to have the expansion and really get out and, 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 and it's a great opportunity when I have the experience for years in a marketplace that's seen this insect for a while coming into where it's brand new and, you know, kind of, you know, knowing what works, what doesn't work, how this is going to be best rather than, you know, starting from scratch. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of funny to the, to the effect I, you know, I, you know, when when Gary first told me about this, I was I was like, really, uh, you know, you know, you guys haven't had this yet, and I'm I'm like, okay, well, new marketplace, new plants. Uh, <laughs> hey, this is opportunity. This is great. Let's go check it out. So, um, you know, fortunately, we've we've got a lot of people in this organization that uh, uh, really love entomology, and um, you know, again, this is uh, hopefully something I can help everybody else uh, out with just uh, based on some of my experience and, and knowledge around the country. When I, uh, when I approached Jordan about it, he says, really, this is a problem there. And I said, look, I got an email from Romy that said it was a problem. It's a problem. <laughs> Let's figure this out. <laughs> I just read an article. I'm like, I wonder if our Saber Tree guys know anything about this. Right. So, um, and this is probably an impossible question to answer, but it was just something I was thinking about since it's recent. We've had a couple significant fires in Arizona over the last 10 years, 20 years. Gosh, Cheddar Sky, was was, on, was that 04? Yeah. Uh, 18 years yeah, ago? Yeah, a yep. long time ago. In the mountains, after a fire, the first thing that comes back is the aspen trees. Correct. Is this any relation? I mean, do they attack younger aspen groves <laughs> and more mature ones? Could that be... 
you know, part with, of the infestation is with a the with force a force recovers with a scale insect. They're going to be rather opportunistic. Um, they're not exactly the most mobile insects. Um, so they rely on you know different modes of transportation, whether it's hitchhiking on a on a bird or uh, just simply being windblown or moving around on you know potentially somebody's pruning tools or or equipment and whatnot, or coming in on new landscape material from a nursery. Um, you know they're they're not easily traveled. Um, so uh, as far as the aspect of of the aspen being really kind of your first generation post fire tree it has more to do with the way they grow and um you know an interesting uh little piece of information about aspen tree is is there's really no genetic diversity in this plant um aspen trees uh as far as i know um all are propagated from a single source genetics uh genetic source so uh, one of the problems uh, that we do know in science is when you lack genetic diversity, a lot of times you lack some natural resistance to some things like this. And a lot of what I've been reading, especially in the aspens, uh, they're showing some uh, some cases where the insect seems to favor different leads of a plant or different branches on a plant over others. Having a natural resistance is probably out of the question a little bit, considering there's no genetic diversity. But you know, typically, anytime that um that an insect is going to be advantageous it's going to be going after a branch that's a little easier to attack so a lot of times there's already some kind of a health issue uh, whether whether it's a, a, a recent drought or like you said a fire for that example um and the nice thing is you know most of our forests are, are very dependent on fire as a reju- rejuvenation tool so you know you think about the aspen it's got a very viable expansive root system it'll shoot up new trees from the ground just off of its root system so when you've got that much mass underground and you get a damaging fire per se that's going to be one of the first plants that really rejuvenates and then comes back up uh, you know kind of that first generation reforestation plant so so yeah if i it sounds like to me since they grows so fast and it's one of the first ones yeah. that's one of the first ones that's going to be affected by the oyster scales yeah. if i'm reading you right, right very very much so okay. yeah it's 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 a very you know again too it's it's a food source for an insect that even if this insect completely kills the plant a new one's going to regrow in you know naturally and and produce a new plant uh, a new food source for that insect so it, it's it's renewable in that aspect well i love learning this is a new topic for me so i appreciate you coming in and educating uh, us, not only us, but the entire Arizona listening audience. We're talking trees with Save a Tree. Joining Rosie on the house. It is the second Saturday of the month, our eight o'clock hour. We call it our outdoor living hour, and we're talking trees. And we've been having a conversation with Jordan Orwig and Gary Peterson of Save a Tree about this new oyster shell that is attacking our aspen trees. Uh, and we're going. We've got just a couple more points to hit on that before we go through the rest of our talking points for this month for our talking trees. Jordan, what's our What's our plan of attack here? So that's a great question. So again, um, kind of recap, and we said the most important really aspect of this is understanding the life cycle and the timing. Um, generally speaking, and I, I hate to use dates, um, 
uh, you know, really when we time insect emergence, we look at uh, we look at growing degree accumulation days, and we're also looking at phenological indicators. But generally speaking, um, folks in Arizona will probably see this kind of uh, late spring, early summer. Um, and really the best way to identify when these uh, crawlers or nymphs hatch is um, you'll start to see these little white kind of cream-colored specks uh, that are mobile now coming out from underneath that oyster shell looking scale which is actually the body of the adult female so once you see those little nymphs um, start to make their way out from underneath uh, the insect we know it's time to do uh, then a topical treatment uh, for a homeowner aspect um, if you can monitor uh, that that closely and, and really grasp when your when your crawler emergence is going to happen uh, these insects are really fairly easy to kill with uh, with an insecticidal soap or a horticultural oil if if you're doing it yourself. Um, if you're running into some larger plants um, where you really don't have ease of access to the entire canopy of the tree, it, we really recommend bringing in a professional arborist then um, that can uh, recommend some different tools that are a little outside of what most homeowners are comfortable using. Uh, not necessarily from a safety standpoint, just from an accessibility and an understanding of the dosage. Probably our number one treatment uh, when we see this is uh, usually we're coming in after the fact so we already have an infestation, so we've lost our ability to prevent it. Uh, so at this point, if we're uh, coming into a client's property and it's before we were seeing this crawler hatch, uh, we have the opportunity to use a systemic product. Um, the, the material name is Dynatefuron, uh, sold under uh, the trade name Safari. Transtech is another one. Um, but this is a, a systemic material, and a systemic material means that it is absorbed into the tissue of the plant and translocated through the plant. Essentially, then, this insect that is feeding on the conductive tissue of the plant ingests uh, the material and and then is controlled. Uh, this is also a material that gives us six weeks of a control window. Uh, so again, being slightly ahead of the timing is ideal to get that product into the tree. And then that way, when those crawlers do hatch, we're already preloaded into the tree. We're going to control them in the earliest uh, portion of their nymph life stage. Another great advantage to this is the fact that we don't have to lose any material into the atmosphere or the environment. Uh, with our systemic applications, um, we've got some new technology where certain materials uh, we no longer have to drill into the tree. Um, we actually have products that you can apply directly to the bark. They will absorb through the bark and actually go into the vascular system of the tree. Uh, these products move up the tree very well, don't move down the tree all, necessarily all that well. And like I said, the Dynatefuron product is going to give you about a six-week window of control. There are some other systemic products. Um, I don't really recommend them for scale insects per se, um, one of them being a metacloprid. Uh, this is another another systemic product. Um, has a longer residual, but not a very effective pro uh, product on scale. Um, one piece of advice for any homeowner, if you are considering treating yourself, um, one of the most important things you can do is read the pesticide label and understand it. You know, many of these products that we use in the professional market are available in a homeowner variety. Um, what tends to be the challenge is getting the rate right and getting the coverage correct. Um, and that, that's where we have the equipment, the tools, and the knowledge to really take care of that. Um, that would probably be my number one treatment. Uh, additionally, I'm a, I'm a giant 
fan of horticultural oil treatments. Uh, these are um, you know, just the product itself, uh, it's not necessarily organic product, but it is a, a natural-based product that is very low impact uh, in regards to resistant to insects. Um, toxicity or, or risk associated with pets, your children, your family, um, are employees that have to apply these materials. And it's it's a good cover treatment that prevents a lot of insect issues from happening before they ever really occur. Uh, we like to do these treatments in the dormant season. Um, one limitation we do have with oyster shell scale specifically is the horticultural oil will control the eggs. However, when the eggs are protected underneath the body of the adult female and that waxy coating, we don't always get good penetration underneath her. Uh, so essentially, there's going to be some eggs that are missed. You know, with any kind of integrated pest management approach, I always recommend, you know, not only scouting, but we have also the opportunity to physically remove them. Probably the easiest thing for a homeowner to do, a soft Brillo pad and uh, a little bit of time and patience and a hand cleaner ready for afterwards. Uh, you can physically remove these and, uh, you know, elim eliminate a lot of the insect presence just by physically cleaning the, the the bark surface of the tree. The oyster shell, something to uh, now be aware of for anyone that's got aspen. Uh, but that's not the only bug. Gary, what else do we have to be looking for? We've got spring and things are coming out. A couple hours ago, I was talking with Sarah Maitland, uh, who's been on the show many times. She had spotted something called a crane fly. And from what she's telling me, when you start seeing crane flies, you start you're two weeks out from seeing the other white flies, caterpillars. So all that stuff's getting ready to come out. This morning, uh, one of my best friends up in Gilbert, Arizona, sent me a picture of a beehive that was extremely active. So the bees are out as well. Be safe. Um, and Jordan's got some tips on safety, doing it yourself, things like that, ladder usage. And uh, he, he's definitely the expert on that as well. Yeah, so you know, coming into the spring, uh, like Gary was saying, the crane fly—that's one of my favorite insects. Uh, just because for the majority of my G life, Gary, do you have favorite insects? I do not. <laughs> the, the one dead under ones. my thumb at any given yeah, moment. Dead ones. Well, the, the interesting thing about the crane fly is I, I went through about thirty-four years of my life thinking this was a giant female mosquito. I'm guessing probably a lot of our listeners have thought the, thought the same thing, but actually, what, when you see that large in, that large mosquito-looking insect, and this thing will have legs maybe an inch long. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen that. Okay. Yeah, and that's, then, a, that's a crane fly. You talk to your, yeah, you talk to your grandfather, and that's the female mosquito that does whatever, and that is a turf insect pest uh, called a crane fly. Uh, fortunately, with your with your warm season grasses down here, uh, probably not going to be a, a major issue. But you get on the east coast; those uh, those fellows do some pretty pretty severe damage. Uh, but like Gary said, um, you know, with uh, with insects, with diseases, and all that, um, you know, you can read a hundred different books that's going to tell you, hey, March or April, or this is the time to do this. What we really have to look at is actually what's happening in the environment. So, you know, really we use two tools really in the industry to focus on that. One of those is growing degree days, uh, which a, a lot of weather stations, um, uh, 
I use a site that's monitored through Michigan State University. And really what these are, are heat accumulation days. So every uh, we usually use what's called a base 50. So every day we have a, a, a high temperature above 50 degrees, we get an accumulation. And at certain points of accumulation, certain insects do certain things. The second part of that is what we call phenological indicators. And um, yeah, this is, this is one of those things that's a little near and dear in my heart because um, actually one of my professors in college co-wrote uh, a book called Coincide, which is a fantastic arborist guide that gives you an abundant amount of insect and disease pests that affect both deciduous and evergreen trees. Uh, also, it will give you what is the target growing degree day to then treat the vulnerable cycle. And it's also going to tell you what other plants might be in bloom at that time. So again, plants do a lot of things in sync. It's just not dependable based on the calendar. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a great tool for us uh, to understand that you know looking around the landscape, what else is going on is going to be telling us what else might be happening there. Just like Gary said, with the crane fly, is a good indicator that things are on, things are moving, things are are coming around, and and spring is on its way. How much tree work and trimming do y'all do off of ladders? Out of curiosity. So uh, the official response to that is none. Um, uh, we do use ladders in our operation. However, um, with our working standards, even if we are to work off of a ladder, we're still tied into a secure point. Um, ladders can be one of the number one hazards we see in an operation. Um, you know, for those of us that went through an educational program to learn how to climb trees, and yes, there is a thing. I took two years of climbing trees in college. He's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, mom and dad were thrilled to hear that one when they're when they're paying the tuition, but it uh, paid off in the long run. Um, well, and speaking of bills, and you know, the reason I brought up ladders <laughs> and safety was falls are the number one cause of people yeah. visiting emergency rooms, and off of a ladder is the number one fall that there is. And you know, it's it's very easy to uh, overextend yourself out there trying to trying to trim up doing your your. Tr I like to do my own tree work. Yep. I, it just I, I do. You know, I, 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 I love working on the trees, but the best, I, I don't even know how much it costs, but one of those long pole that's got a saw on one side and then it's got, you know, you can flip it around for smaller mm -hmm. ones. It's got a knife with a string yep. uh, just to be able to stay on the ground. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I encourage people to stay on the ground. Um, you know, it's not only um, are you putting yourself at risk of actually being up and down on the ladder, uh, but really the biggest hazard we see is the fact that usually you're taking something out of the top of that tree and it's now going down to where the base of your ladder is. And if you're not exactly clear on what I'm talking about, there's a couple hundred videos on YouTube uh, that'll that'll uh, paint a very clear picture. But you know, branches falling out of trees and taking the ladder out from underneath people is a huge hazard. And you know, I you know, be safe out there. Um, we are professionals. We invest a, a a ton of time and money in making sure that our crews have the best gear, the best equipment, and the best training on how to use it, so they can they can stay safe out there. Very not not many ladders in our world. There's a lot of um, a lot of ropes, a lot of rigging. Uh, we climb the tree. We don't use spikes or anything like that. Cherry pickers. Yep. Occasionally, we don't have any cherry pickers in Phoenix yet. We're still we're still climbing. Um, the, and the other the other point that uh, I always think about when we talk about ladders and climbing, in the top of the tree coming out taking the ladder, well, you've also got a sharp object in your hand. <laughs> so you know, and, it's not and just sometimes the motorized. The exactly. So and multiple. Right. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, how many different blades will you carry? You've got hand saws. Pruners, yeah, uh, yeah, typically, typically uh, an arborist crew will carry um, 
you know two to three different size chainsaws. Uh, each climber is required to carry a handsaw with them. Um, you know, part of that is in case they have to escape, they can cut their way out of it. Um, and then also, too, for our more finesse work, we use, um, you know, very high precision hand pruning tools um, that, that do a real nice job for us. Oh. And they do a, one, do a number on fingers as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've got one final segment here, Talking Trees with Jordan Orwig and Gary Peterson of Save a Tree. down to our final segment talking trees how are we going to bring it on home gentlemen well i'd like to start by maybe talking about uh some irrigation uh a lot of people um don't really understand how when why what irrigation is um so i did a little research and actually the uh state arizona city of phoenix has a guide to do that if you go to amwua.org you can download the landscape watering by the numbers. It actually has a chart in it. Um, toward the back, it's actually, it's the last page. There's a there's a gauge in there that tells you what time of the year, spring, summer, fall, winter, how much water you should be putting on, how far down. Uh, a lot of overwatering here in the desert. It's amazing what that clay soil can retain underneath right, the surface right right you got any tips for irrigation you know what um i think right now is a very uh, very key time we're seeing our bermuda grass one really key point for everybody is understanding uh on your lawn specifically the water requirements and and really if you're talking to bermuda grass lawn um you know we recommend about an inch to an inch and a half of water per week i usually recommend three cycles during the week every other day now the big question comes up how do you tell that you put an inch of water down easy trick for the homeowner next time you make a tuna sandwich save the can put it out in your lawn and run a cycle on your irrigation system then measure how much water's in it over the course of three to four times a week, inch and a half, uh, you're right on target. You know, we understand that grass needs water and it's important, but a lot of times we don't understand what kind of stress we're putting on the lawns and what kind of potential damage we're doing by overwatering our lawns. That's actually the reason why Jordan's in town this week. Like I said earlier, we're kicking off our lawn. Now, you've been out in the field a couple of days. What are you seeing? You know what? I'm, I'm seeing... Um, all kinds of things. Obviously, you know, being from a part of the country that deals mostly with cool season grasses and now getting down into this warm season climate, I, I've been real excited because it's a new learning learning opportunity for me. What I'm seeing right now is any of those lawns that are overseeded are really looking nice right now. Uh, this is nice temperatures to grow ryegrass. Uh, if, if people are irrigating and keeping them watered properly, weeds are at a minimum. The ryegrass is looking great, but that's uh, that's going to start to change here real real quick. If you get down there and you look at it, you're going to see a lot of stolons, a lot of stolons starting to come into life, a lot of little Bermuda grass blades starting to form, and you know, that transition's right around the corner um, if you already haven't seen it. The, the one other thing I wanted to talk about since we're talking about lawn, the, the plant healthcare topic of uh, the philosophy that save a tree, arborists, all the societies have. I uh, wanted to talk about the, the less toxic environment and how to promote that as a homeowner. Right. So one, one, thing, one thing I've been very proud to be a part of Save a Tree uh, regarding is, uh, is our overall organizational commitment to not just following the trends, but leading the trends. And a lot of this comes at a cost, but it's also given us the opportunity to really be the leading force in the marketplace 
uh, as far as using materials that have a lower acute toxicity, um, you know, obviously to our applicators who we who we value extremely, but also our clients, um, you know, their their pets, their children, uh, you know, all of this is extremely important to everybody, and you know, science is accelerating in our world um, at, at a rate that's that's pretty astounding. Um, Obviously, um, you know, lawn care, tree care isn't as essential as production agriculture that feeds the world. Uh, but that part of the marketplace, which typically feeds our materials secondhand, um, has really given us some tools that um, I, I was amazed to see. Uh, we're, we're seeing materials now coming into the marketplace that no longer require an EPA signal word um, because they literally cannot find a way to hurt people with it. Um, LD50 numbers, which is your lethal dose, this is how they rate different chemicals on how toxic they are. Um, they can't even produce a, a, a reliable LD50 number because of the lower toxicity of these. Uh, we're coming into a generation now where the old approach of killing insects with a neurotoxin isn't uh, isn't socially acceptable anymore. Uh, so we're getting new products. Um, you know, some some of these products that I'm really excited about are are what we call insect growth regulators. So rather poisoning the nervous system of an insect, we're actually interrupting the molting cycle, which then controls the insect because it's no longer able to grow. Um, one of the greatest things about some of these materials is they're extremely specific to the type of insect that we're targeting, targeting um, and also have been extensively tested to see what the impacts potentially are on pollinators, and the results have been really amazing. Wow. So, um, you know, it's 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 one thing to do your job. It's another thing to do it well and also be a steward to the environment and, and take care of this planet that we have to continue to live on. And coming up is Arbor Day, Plant a Tree Day. And I'd mentioned that I like to trim my own trees. Part of it, I, just, I planted them. They're like my little babies, you know. <laughs> that's, that's a great point. Yeah, and, and we always tell people, you, you don't plant a tree for yourself. You know, the, you know, many of our trees that we plant on our landscape have a life expectancy of, you know, some of them five, six, seven hundred years. Um, so to to think about doing this for ourselves, that it's a it's a great a great process to you know put something there that's going to last for generations to come, and you know, the emotional attachment people have to their landscape and their trees is is really phenomenal in the aspect that you know it's not just an aesthetic value there's also you know there's also a financial value whether it be shade from the from the um, intense sunlight you guys have out here all the time um or or just simply uh protection from the wind and if somebody needed a certified arborist and what and y'all's current service area i cover the whole valley the whole valley. The whole valley. Save a tree. S a v a t r e e dot com. Six zero two six one four four eight zero seven. Jordan Orwig and Gary Peterson. Thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us. Thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. pleasure.